Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My mate bought a toaster. We go through celebrities' Amazon purchase histories so you don't have to keep calm and love Dom Jolly novelty key ring yeah, and fridge that. magnets. Yeah, I love that. The G-spot. <laughs> The good vibrations, guys. Green dot laser sight rifle gun scope. I've bought that quite a lot of times. Right, okay. The sex doctor's guide to keeping it hot. Ah, interesting. Did another child come along nine months later? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Loads of great apps up now, and new ones dropping every Monday. That's My Mate Bought a Toaster from Great Big Owl. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um. <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Pop Craze Youngsters, and welcome to part two of episode 52 of Chart Music. I'm your host, Al Needham. Those people over there are Neil Kulkani and Taylor Parks. And are our loins sufficiently girded for this episode? Because it's a big old fucker, it's a beast. isn't it, this one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfectly girded, thanks. It really is. Yeah, full gird. Before we get stuck into it, just want to do a bit of notes and corrections. Um, it, it, it got back to me. The, the mystery of that metal box in the last episode, yeah. Taylor. You know, the one that I thought yeah. might be a camera and, and you thought was yeah. something else entirely. You were right and I was wrong. But apparently it was a, a monitor for uh, the live vocals on oh, some of the songs. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Always pop crazy youngsters. If, if I say anything wrong, never be scared of pulling me up on it and saying, you don't know what the fuck you're going on about, you twat. <laughs> <laughs> I can accept that. I, I want to learn. We we learn together in chart music. <laughs> all right then, Pop Craze Youngsters, it's time to go all the way back to Valentine's Day 1985. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. <laughs> Ten minutes to eight on Thursday, February the 14th, 1985. And Top of the Pops has been under the reign of Michael Hurl for five years now. You can argue that the show has come out of the Yellow Hurl period by now, with many of the original formats he introduced falling by the wayside. But I would argue that the the tinkering is at its height round about this time, don't you think? Mm, mm, Definitely. A lot of things coming to an end and a lot of things just beginning. Mm. M- most of which antagonise the viewers. Your hosts are Simon Bates and Janice Long. 
Bates is now in his eighth year in the mid-morning slot on Radio 1, but he's also casting his net into other television programmes. Last summer, he presented Names and Games, a celebrity it's a knockout. He's also about to appear on Radio 4's magazine show, The Colour Supplement, where he goes back to his roots and milks a cow on air. Thankfully, he's not wanking any bulbs off or anything like that. <laughs> he's also going to be a very special guest on a future episode of The Keith Harris Show with Barbara Dixon and Duncan Norvell. He's also mixed into the rotation of Blankety Blank and he's going to end the year as the star prize at the Daily Star and Baby Sham Female DJ of the Year competition where the winner gets to learn at his feet for 10 days in that there America. Oh, what a tempting prize that is, Simon Bates. <laughs> wow. I wonder where, where did he regularly appear on the Blankety Blank panel? I'm guessing... The dull spot, which tended to be top left. Yeah, or yes. top yeah. right. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah, not on the bottom where Kenny Everett lived. Nah. Yeah, gender segregated, wasn't it? It was always male, top left, top right, and the wacky guy, bottom centre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, top left or top right really was the dull spot, wasn't it? But he was a bit of a, a renaissance man, Simon Bates. He's, I think he must have had a good agent because he turns up yeah. on a lot of stuff around this time as if he's the Radio 1 DJ who's a cut above, you know, and he's mm. like he's yes. a wit and, and an after-dinner speaker or something. Yes. Simon fucking Bates. I don't know what, I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ. You look at him here, he looks like someone's just come into his cave and poked him awake with a stick. <laughs> and normally he'd eat them, but mm. he owes it to the villagers who saved his life to come out once in a while and present top of the pot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, in his own mind, he was like uh, Peter Eustonov mm. or something. He's attained this longevity, which gives him that, I couldn't exactly call it gravitas, but it gives him the right to appear on all of this nonsense. I mean, he's been presenting Top of the Pops now since 1979. And most of the people that he started with have stopped presenting Top of the Pops now. So, you know, there's no Savas. There's no Travis anymore. Uh, They stopped in 84. Kid Jensen's gone. Andy Peebles has gone. Tony Blackburn's gone. Tommy Vance. They all stopped in 84. And Bates is now with this kind of cast of, um, you know, younger DJs, Peter Powell and Bruno Brooks and Gary Davis and Janice Long on this episode. And those people, they have to inherently sort of slightly have to kowtow to his seniority. And he's just about hanging in there. He's 39 when this episode airs. God, that means if I lived on one of the nearby estates, I would have been old enough to be his dad. (laughs) I'd have been 13 when he was born. (laughs) Shit. Are you sure you're not from Coventry? But um, no, I mean, I sense a slight discomfort from Janice, re sort of Bates' slight grabbiness and tactility. Yeah. But it's nowhere near Mm. as uncomfortable or horrific as it would be to, I don't know, see DLT or or Noel on the show still in 85. Well, she's been shared out with everyone, hasn't Mm. she? Poor old Mm. Janice. So she's been with Savile, and I can't even bring myself to look at that episode just yet. No, 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 no. no. I mean, every time Simon Bates presents Top of the Pops, I always ask the same question. Why? (laughs) And I'm, I'm, you know, I've tried to answer it for myself, really. I tried to educate myself, and I'm just reminded that this is the time when I was 16, so I'm out of school. And so I'm listening to more bits of Radio 1 than I did before. Mm. And, you know, I've got to say, 
the Simon Bates show was something I would listen to quite often because the golden hour meant there was mm. one spot in the day on Radio 1 where you were guaranteed back-to-back decent music. Yeah. I mean, it's good that you mentioned the rock and roll years earlier because that strip mining of the past became yes. like, really precious to a lot of us. You have to go back and realise that, you know, he is the most popular DJ on Radio 1. Mm. He's pulling down about 11 million listeners a day. Our tune is the most popular bit of radio in the whole country. Apparently, he's getting something like 8,000 letters for our tune a week or something stupid like that. And um, Top of the Pops is all about grabbing as many eyeballs as possible. Simon Bates has got a lot of housewives he can bring to the party. (laughs) Uh, Annie Nightingale did Desert Island Disc just a couple of days before we recorded this. and, And she said that she was once told by a BBC executive that she was never going to fit in at Radio 1 because the DJs were supposed to act as surrogate husbands for the female and housewifey <laughs> listenership at the time. So BBC 1 had gone, oh, Simon Bates, he'd make a good husband for someone. <laughs> but do, do you remember when we did the episode with Alan Freeman presenting? Mm. And, and I, think, I think Taylor said that just he's a... a fluff work because he's just a really reliable handover guy which is essentially all you're doing on top of the pops and it's the same for Bates he's he's you know he's reliably innocuous that you can't quite even as us sort of uh us kids couldn't quite locate our dislike of him yeah he was just reliably safe and comfortable and that's why he's there that's why he continues to be there well he is at this point yeah because he, 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 as he yeah, gets older, point, yeah. he doesn't become more grotesque. He sort of steps back a bit. And all the personality yeah. links in this episode are being done by Janice Long. And Bates is mm. just standing there kind of with a, a benign half-smile. <laughs> it's like when he puts his arm around Janice, there's no not a hint of, uh, you know, sex pest or, like, office harassment about it. He's genuinely no. avuncular and grandfatherly. I contend that by putting Simon Bates on Top of the Pops, the BBC is saying, look, it's all right, ma'am. You can watch Top of the Pops. You aren't going to see people injecting heroin and bombing each other on on stage. No. Because Simon Bates wouldn't stand for that nonsense. No, he got all that out of the way in the dressing room. Yeah, and even if he won't... even The thing is with Bates, even if he won't offer explicit critique of anything that's presented on Top of the Pops, there's something about his facial expressions and the way he delivers links that, that just lets you know what he thinks, in a way. That happens a couple <laughs> of times in this episode. It's just the way he says certain uh, band names... He doesn't yeah. wrinkle his nose or anything in disgust. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? There's keenness with yeah. some artists yeah. and there's definite non-keenness with others that I think yeah. parents and, and grandparents would respond to. Yeah. Yeah, I think he only editorialises at one or two points in this whole episode. Yeah. Mm. It's just a bit of fun. I mean, that's all it is. Janice Long, who is on Radio 1 right now, is in the evening slot that she's held down since September of 1984. Tonight, she's wedged between Bruno Brooks and Into the Music with Tommy Vance. She made a couple of guest appearances on Top of the Pops in late 1982 and started co-hosting in January of 1983, originally teamed up with Gary Davis. This is her 17th appearance on Top of the Pops and her third go on Simon Bates. (laughs) Last month, in an interview with Smash Hits, she addressed her current relationship with Peter Powell and praised Radio 1 and the BBC to the skies. 
When asked if she was the token woman on top of the pop, she said, I think there'll be a change and more girls will be involved. Now you can join the BBC, get married and have a baby and come back to it. You don't have to stay at home. She is two years away from being demoted from her Radio 1 slot for having a baby and suddenly, according to Radio 1 controller Johnny Bailing, becoming two mums oh, Fucking <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Fuck the BBC. Wow, quiet. Simon Bates, Janice Long, the sexual chemistry is crackling tonight, isn't it? <laughs> I love Janice. Um, and yeah. I think I still do. She was equally important to me as a radio listener as, as Addie Nightingale. And for a while, she was way more important to me than Peely. Because Peel was on yeah. too late. I was little, you know, I got sleepy. Yeah. Um, but Janice was crucial in proving to me that, 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 I don't know, the things I dug in old music were not things that were entirely, entirely abandoned by modern musicians. So I remember, mm. uh, you know, very crystalline memories of, of things that she played that really blew my mind and as a kid at the time who had just been bought a guitar um what mm. was frustrating was that you could learn a stone song or a velvet song or a t-rex song in a few minutes but when you sort of apprehended the music that was getting shoved at you in 84 and 85 by the mainstream it seemed like hyper musical played through incredibly expensive equipment by expensive mm. session men wearing expensive clothes but Janice and Peely would ju- they just gave you this suggestion that there might be something else going on um so what yeah. I mentioned about like the Mary chain being important in that year and of course Prince was suggesting a whole load of other things as well 1985 mm. f- for pop but also for me rather selfishly if I can say it that way it was a pivot year you know, I pivoted, mm. I changed, I decided not to be part of things and to be looking elsewhere. And, and Janice was part of that, a big part of that. Unlike, say, I don't know, with Andy Kershaw, for instance, and is there a more horrible broadcasting family than the Kershaws? But unlike Andy <laughs> Kershaw, who always gave me the impression he was into music as a way of proving something about himself rather than mm. anything else, she seemed to genuinely just be a pop fan. And a music lover. And yeah. and in a sea of kind of Gary Davises and Bruno Brooks's and Steve Wright's, um, your Janice Long's, your Tommy Vance's and, you know, your Peebles. And also everyone forgets ranking Miss P from this era as well, because those shows were really, yes. really important. Um, those, those people were godsends. Um, the fact that the kind of, I, I wouldn't exactly call it the Janice Long mindset, but the fact that all of that music specialist stuff has now been turned into the kind of entirely objectionable Radio 6 mentality um, bugs mm. the fuck out of me. But at the time, yeah, Janice was massively important. She she lit a lot of, you know, touch papers for me with the, with the stuff that she plays. It seems daft now looking back that I could be, I don't know, listening to the radio and a fucking song by the Blake Babies comes on and it blows my mind. But it, but it, it, it was thin pickings back then. And Janice mm. gave you, the, gave you, you know, what little there was to be interested in that was contemporary. So God bless, I've always liked Janice. She's not shy in revealing what she likes on this episode. Mm. <laughs> I mean, at some points, you're often expected to just fall over the balcony and just run on stage. Yeah, but that's what's great. She sounds like a fan. Yeah. She, 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 yes. she reacts like a fan. It, it, it's good to see. Yeah. The problem I always had with Janice Longshow is that it, there was always this slight lukewarm water sense about it. Of like, It was a lot of groups. Like, it wasn't like she would play a lot of good music, but. The groups that were Janice Long bands, right, the kind mm. of groups that you yeah. would only hear on the Janice Long show were the problem, where they were sort of half-arty 
and half commercial and mostly it used to mean some sort of pouting gel-haired lads in brand new posh leather jackets <laughs> that they'd bought with a record company <laughs> advance you know like signed to signed to a pseudo indie subsidiary mm. of chrysalis records or wea playing this sort of swirling tuneless pop rock with a gloopy mm. digital chorus effect and reverb on the snare and like sub echo and the bunny men singing you know, it's the sort of thing that was always being tipped for the charts by people who hadn't noticed the total absence <laughs> of bands remotely like this from the charts for all time. And yeah, I mean, you had bands who were born like that, and that's just what they were. And then you had uh, you had bands who started off as fairly interesting, or at least like spirited indie bands uh, with their own distinct sound, who took the shilling. And they were rushed into a proper studio with a proper producer and had all their distinguishing features mm. sanded down. This used to happen a lot in the 80s when guitar music couldn't get in the charts. Um, and, yeah, they were converted into fully generic Janice Long bands. Uh, <laughs> and they got on the Janice Long show and that was the end of that. Yeah, Never heard from them again. Would then Jericho be one of those I bands? don't know. I think then, then Jericho were born that way. <laughs> I'll tell you a good example of a band who were converted into that, the Bodines. I used to really oh, like the Bo- They did one great single and B-side and one great radio session. And then it was into that smoke glass 80s studio and, uh, you know, with a cost mm. half the advanced producer who was just there to press the make it sound shit button. <laughs> uh, and away they went, yeah. like, down the dumper, you know, and all they got to show for it was a... A late eighties Gretsch twelve string and a posh leather jacket. <laughs> all that was left of the advance. You know. It's like we think our music should be heard by the largest possible audience. You know. So yeah, ten seconds on the chart yeah. show and a, yeah, yeah, and a university tour supporting Cactus World News. Was it worth <laughs> it? Yeah. that that era? I mean, it, it's kind of for us fans of guitar music if I can put it in that stupid way. 87, 88 is when things start getting tremendously exciting. In 85, it was yeah. kind of, it, it, it's the that petrol emotion years, you know. So it was very much yeah, thin yeah. pickings. But you, you grabbed what you could. You grabbed what you could. Um, um, the, the really, truly fascinating music from 85 was probably getting paid by Peely much, much later. But um, yeah, Janice at least offered some hope. But you, you're right in terms of what a Janice Long band was like. They'd be unfailingly kind of, I mean, they'd be white for a start. <laughs> they'd be jangly yeah. mm. and they'd be kind of quite earnest, probably lefties. There, there was a Janice Long band type, definitely. Yeah! Right, youngsters, tonight you can rave with the Killing Joke. We've got the Colourfield and also the Smith. And also we've got to start off with Dead or Alive and you spin me round. awkwardly says hi funsters and then tells us that we can rave tonight with a list of decent bands skillfully omitting the shit ones (laughs) it's a bit like your mum telling you about the lovely trifle that's waiting for you after you've had to eat all the family pets (laughs) Bates clearly in no nonsense mode grabs us by the wrist and Irish whips us straight into the first act dead or alive with you spin me round like a record 
We've already covered Dead or Alive in chart music number 22, and this, their second single on Epic, is the follow-up to their cover of Casey and the Sunshine Band's That's The Way I Like It, which got to number 22 in April of last year. It's the first track from the forthcoming LP Youthquake and was written by Burns last year as a mashup of I Wanted Your Love by Luther Vandross and See You Round Like a Record by Little Nell with a chord structure based on Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. And when he heard Whatever I Do Wherever I Go by Hazel Dean and You Think You're a Man by Divine, he demanded to be linked up with their producers, which turned out to be Stock, Aitken and Waterman. It was actually released in November of 1984 and took four weeks to get to number 49, then slipped down the lower reaches of the charts for three weeks running before clawing back upward, only to slip back after getting to number 41. But it somehow managed to get to number 40 last week, and this week it soared 21 places to number 19, which has warranted them a shot on top of the pops. Simon Bates is... Uh professionalism slightly wobbles at the beginning he introduces this he says we've got comma to start off with comma dead or alive but of course it comes out saying we've got to start off with dead or alive like yes. someone's twisted his arm behind his back yeah but yeah it's the re- it's the record after which stock aiken and waterman could and arguably should have retired because everything they did subsequently sounds like this Formula One engine being nerfed and depowered and scaled down to fit inside a noddy car. And (laughs) this was the peak. And everything after this is like a foggy memory of that Mm. peak, which leaves out half of what made it so glorious. It's It's like a tornado, this record. All this power in a little circular space just feeding on itself and leaving a trail of devastation and quickly burning out, which they did. Mm. Uh, But you only need to make this record once, you know. This is not the first appearance of Dead or Alive on Top of the Pops. uh, They're pitched up almost a year earlier, looking as if they were absolutely lacerated by the early 80s stick. And uh, Mm. Pete Burns looked like a a, a homoerotic Tour de France cyclist of the future. (laughs) With this fucking amazing tsunami of a hairstyle which was swept over one side like like the logical extension of Phil Oakey's haircut. Right. In this one, I mean, this is an extraordinarily good introduction to an episode of Top of the Pops. Yeah. It's like they've, they've glued a load of mirrors onto a wrecking ball. <laughs> Burns is, is really toned down here, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, in fairness, no one can look that demonic and spellbinding when they're being filmed upwards from just under the stage, as everyone is in this era. There's like mm. endless shots of the underside of people's chins mm. and <laughs> inside of their nostrils, you know. But, yeah, he's trying. By Pete Burns' standards, this is formal wear, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we see him at the beginning from the rear, kind of like rocking from side to side and making the flaps of his coat ripple outwards. And we see a bit of white sock peeking out. So the overall impression is... Uh, Zaphod Beeble Brocks presents a tribute to Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah. It's a fucking good look, though. The thing is, he looks he looks weird, but not that weird for 1985, mm. when there was a lot of long coats and yeah. teased-out hair 
going around. And yeah. there's just a slight sense that he's arrived a year too late, perhaps. Yeah, which yeah, yeah. yeah. Is yes. why it's important that the record sounds so up to date. I mean, it's obviously mm. derived from high energy records that have been around for years. But in terms of the British charts, this is absolutely right now. As you can tell from the fact yeah. that a diluted version of this will be the predominant sound of the next four years. I mean, that, that, that's what's weird, because, of course, all of us, we think of Pete Burns as, as kind of fundamentally a freak in a lot of ways. But actually, these performances, I mean, he doesn't do anything in this performance that, I don't know, seems a feat of acrobatics or dancing. It, it, it's just kind of pure persona. Even mm. that thing he always did of shoving his hands in his pockets and making his jacket look like bat wings <laughs> was something that kind of kids could do in a sense. But I think it might have been overstated, really, that he was a kind of last gasp for the freaks. He's not a freak, really, in this performance. No. He's a good-looking bloke at this point, in fairly good clothes. Mm. The real freaks of pop, when you think about, like I don't know, somebody like Ian Jewelry appearing on top of the pops, yeah. that's a strange thing. This isn't as jarringly strange um, mm. as that, um, you know. But I don't think I liked this record at the time. No, I, I love it now. Yeah, I don't think I liked it at the time as a sonic thing because I kind of didn't know where it came from from the start off. And what I didn't appreciate as a snotty little cunt was how lack of restraint can be an art form and how making something almost deliberately trashy can be an achievement in itself. Mm. Um, but now I love it because what it is, what it comes across, even watching this performance, it comes across like a, a 60s psych single, yeah. but produced on state-of-the-art shit. But it's all that stuff that Trevor Horn had and all that stuff that Martin Rushant had, but it's been given to these blokes on... <laughs> Brew eleven and speed, and 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 it's this. It's one of those songs. It's kind of like it's you know if you were describing a song to somebody else, you might la la it to them. This is one of those songs where it can only be described in dun duns. It goes dun 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 dun. It, the the yeah. whole song is like that. So uh, no doubts, Static and Waterman. You know they knew Patrick Cowley and they knew high energy music. And I like to think that Pete Waterman as a, as a DJ from the sixties knew his sixties R and B as psych as well, and that has that feel. But mm. I think Taylor's spot on in as much as I wouldn't actually say this is a high point for, for Static and Altman. I, I, I would say that's oh, probably yeah, Men and Kim right in 87, but they were always on a trajectory, Static and Altman, towards basically maximum cheapness yeah. and mm. formulaicness. That to them is progress. So these first few years of productions until 87 and Men and Kim, those are the only times in which they're still finding their method, but also they're running up against personas and people who problematize their kind of essentially anodyne plan of what they want to do. Mm. This record would never work without Pete Burns. Um, and Pete Burns' shtick, which to his credit, he manages to spin out in a recording and musical sense for a while, would have had no substance without this record. It's yeah. one of those accidental flare-ups that happen. And, mm. and pretty soon, when Stott Aitken and Waterman realised that, I don't know, soap actors are way more pliant than pop stars, mm. such a record wouldn't happen again. But it, it yeah. is one of their one of their high points, and and it it it's one of their first productions. But even though it's kind of a first flowering of their ideas, you can hear all kinds of Stott Aitken and Waterman motifs that have come to dominate. So you have the co-option of gay music for a straight market. You have this kind of anti-minimalism. There's no space in this record. No, it's just jam-packed. It's full of texture. A lot of it horrible, but it, it's like all the settings are at maximum. Um, modernity and there's no space really in it there's no dubbiness there's no silence um, so I think the major focus for Stott Aitken and Waterman at this point 
wasn't really making f- records with feel or ambience in a sense. It was just about adhesiveness. It was just about getting stuff yeah. velcroed to your head. And no mm. tactic was beneath them, really, if they wanted to make something stick in your consciousness. So even though I ended up finding a lot of Star Aitken and Waterman textures pretty horrible, and uh, especially towards the late 80s, this is, yeah, that brief accidental flare-up where their sound hit a persona that made for a really, really interesting record. Yeah, I think you're right as well about uh, mm. about their mentality. It's, it, it's weird, uh, like... In the mid-80s, there were a lot of people trying to do that Andy Warhol thing, right? Like, you went to the Velvets or whatever, and it's like, yeah, it's like... But they didn't realise that the most Warholian people in pop at the time were probably Stock Aitken and Waterman, where (laughs) it was just about industry and production and just keeping Mm. things... Just work, keeping things going, and that was the art in itself. And the more the same those Mm. records sounded, the better they liked it. Um, yeah, and yeah, it's just yeah. you just keep going and keep going and keep going. And I love how they've got no qualms whatsoever about always doing the cheapest and most obvious thing, right? <laughs> like if they need a fill <laughs> before the next verse, they just mm. put in an electronic noise that goes like just to charge you up. Um, <laughs> and it's totally brutal and it works. It's like how today the one of the most popular sports in the world is just two really hard people having a fight <laughs> just cuts out the middleman and all that messing around with with a ball and stuff and it's it's like this record the the other thing that this record has in common with UFC is that no fully developed human being could survive on this alone but for as long as it's happening like everything else just seems like clutter and and distraction you know, it's a really mm. self-consciously inhuman record in a good way. Like if you remove the random aspect of most music, yeah. right? Like the unpredictable movement of nature within the sound of a guitar or a violin or acoustic drums, right? Which is the element that creates the old-fashioned excitement in rock or funk, but also the the, the feeling of vulnerability and loss of control. And even a lot of electronic music tries to replicate that. Um, was that here it's just replaced with this meticulously designed grid of electronic spikes which correspond Mm. to predetermined musical pressure points and (laughs) it's like you end up with this infallible record (laughs) it's it's indestructible Yeah, I mean, yeah. all yeah. all of the sounds you could have heard sounds like this coming from your Trevor Horns and your Martin Russians, but but this this is like all of that stuff has found its way back into the hands of a kind of Chin and Chapman type setup, where where it's ultimately cheesemongers, um, and they're making great great cheese, and all the subtle. I don't know, complexity of the performances of somebody like your Martin Fries yeah. and Billy McKenzie. So they're suddenly just overwhelmed by the old cliche of just having a big flamboyant nutter at the front. Um, now, yeah. if this record had pointed somewhere, it might be considered differently, but I don't think it really did point anywhere. It might, it might have pointed somewhere for Stike and Waterman's yeah. production. But in a sense, it's not even a big fuck you to new pop or or a setting up of something new because it doesn't really lead anywhere. There weren't really many more records like this in terms of the way it was written. Um, It's a one-off. It's a glorious, glorious one-off. And it it doesn't feel like the end of something or the start of something. It's just, here it is. You're going to buy this and it's going to stick in your head for the rest of your life. Um, And so it proved. Yeah, just like you, Neil, at the time, I really didn't like this song because I just saw it as tiny music. Yeah. This is a point where high energy becomes music for Gary and Sharon instead of Gary and Barry. 
<laughs> well, well, the split, I mean, Stike and Warman open up that big cultural division of music fans towards the tail of the, of the 80s that we've already seen in the bits that you've read out from NME and stuff. That split between real and fake towny music, I guess. And although spiritually and politically I'll, I'll always err on the side of fake music rather than real music, Stike and Walkman end up testing that kind of optimism to its limit because by the end of the 80s, nearly everything they're involved with is pretty awful. Um, this record still sounds fucking amazing on AM radio. Um, yeah. So so it, it's different from their other output in that sense. Mm. I mean, Pete Burns, he, he has calmed down a lot since his last appearance on Top of the Pops. I think that's simply because he knows that the fucking song's going to take them wherever they want mm. to go. He doesn't yeah. He doesn't have to dress it up. Yeah, and it, it's, a, it's a good move to tone down the gothiness mm. as well because I think the only weak point or, the, or the, the weakest point on this record is that audible hangover from them being a kind of early goth band, that doomy sort of dark opera acting. Mm. It works as a counterpoint, but... I don't know, in a way, I think this record would be even better without that, sort of, you know, just as a pure white-out, make-believe future, you know, just lacking totally in any kind of humanity that is not sexual or violent. (laughs) I don't know, I just think it's a little bit, just a little bit weighed down by that gothic boom in the that sort of Dracula type thing. (laughs) I want to bite your finger. I mean, yeah, I'd have liked it colder and sharper and nastier oh and without the rest of the band who are obviously not miming to anything they actually played and (laughs) look like they should be providing musical backup for an open mic talent contest in battling or uh, or coffee and cream live every night in the prince's ballroom (laughs) kids welcome till half past eight a selection of sounds to suit every taste. <laughs> According to Simon Price of the Barry News, Pete Burns is this year's lovable bisexual. <laughs> but he was already seen as the Princess Margaret to Boy George's Queen Elizabeth, wasn't he? Right, yeah. Which was a bit unfair on both of them, I reckon. <laughs> and one thing here that I was quite struck by was he's, uh, he's not looking down the barrel of the camera, is he? No, no, he doesn't break any fourth wall no no he's kind of performing to the crowd to be fair yes he is yeah you know without the need for a mic i don't think he actually has a mic does he you'd expect him to look down the camera especially when he does the finger waggy bit when he says you look like a lot of fun (laughs) yeah or he could have turned around and looked at simon Bates. yes (laughs) (laughs) but hey the kids seem to like it don't they the the flags and the party hats are are still in full effect on top of the pops they are Um, they're wearing those plastic boaters with the red and white stripes that make it look like a dartboard. Mm. And, uh, yeah, kids are getting down. Well, they're getting down now. I mean, what they're doing, what they do throughout the episode, which is clap and blow whistles and stuff. Mm. Um, They're still in the Hurl era. They're still, yeah... There's not enough audience. And what, what we do see so far anyway, we do get to see more of them later... But what we see so far is just to add to a general sense of boisterousness. So the following week, You Spin Me Round leapt 14 places to number five. And two weeks after that, after being out for 17 weeks, it ripped this week's number one off the summit of Mount Pop and stood there proudly for two weeks before giving way to Easy Lover by Philip Bailey. The follow-up. 
Lover Come Back to Me got to number 11 in April of this year and they'd have two more chart hits in 1985. But by this time it transpired that an estimated 72% of its sales was off the 12-inch version at a time when record labels considered 12 inches as promotional material and bands and artists were not paid royalties on them. Oh, You know what I mean? I didn't know that. That's that's fucking outrageous, isn't it? When I bought Paul Harcastle's 19 yeah. on 12-inch, he got no money from that. Well, I'm guessing it depended on what label he was on, but it, right. apparently it was standard practice in the early 80s that you were on a, either a reduced rate for your 12-inch singles, or in the case of Epic, Dead or Alive's label, uh, you got no royalties at all on it. So when I bought Take It Away by Paul McCartney, on 12 inch yeah I didn't that money wasn't even going to Paul he could have bought a, a donkey for his farm or something like that with it Taylor but no <laughs> <laughs> that animal idiot but after threatening to take the label to court they relented and the band and everyone else on Epic were paid off good old Pete Burns hey. mm. But that's amazing, isn't it? I suppose they were seen as promotional items in as much as they'd be circulated to DJs yeah. and stuff and be played out because they were extended mixes and stuff. So, it, but I don't know. That's mad. Because, I mean, you know, by this time, if the Style Council had got a single out, like a good lad, I'd go out and I'd buy the 7-inch and the 12-inch. Yeah. That's what you did. I wanted to hear extended mixes And bonus anyway. tracks. I bought, Ray. I think it uh, was, yeah, Talking Edge Road to Nowhere. I, I think I bought that in 85. It was definitely a year where I started buying 12s and mm. I, because of the extended mix. I'm appalled that all of that money I spent, all of those pennies, never found its way to the artists. This can't be true. Are you sure this is true? <laughs> all right, here's a <laughs> quote from Pete Burns himself from the book Europe oh. Stars of 80s Dance Pop, compiled by James Arena. Oh. <clears throat> One thing that came out of that period was that we changed something huge in the music industry. Back then, artists didn't receive any royalties whatsoever on 12-inch record sales. These records were seen as promotional tools. The people who did the chart thing kept holding it back because they couldn't believe how many 12-inch singles it was selling. It depends what you think a lot of money is, but I think we lost a lot as a result of our arrangement with the label. In my estimation, we lost maybe three quarters of a million pounds in royalties. We told the record company we were taking them to court for non-payment of royalties and that we were going to leave the label. The record company didn't want to lose us, agreed to pay the settlement and royalties on our 12-inch record sales because there was no way any judge was going to look at 72% of our sales and agree with the label that it was acceptable. After we received the settlement, I just basically let it out whenever I could because I thought the label's protocol in regard to 12-inch singles was wrong. Gradually, other people on the label like Paul Young, Alison Moyer, Sade and others started getting royalties on 12-inch records. They don't know that I made it happen, but I did. So there you go. Paul Young got a whole new wardrobe of leather box jackets and flecky grey suits. Yeah. All down to Pete Burns. Well, kudos to Pete Burns. I'm 
Tilly Steele. And I'm Helen Monks. And this is Bitchin'. I'm dyslexic. Yeah, why do you read the Wikipedia page? <laughs> it's good to practice. Yeah. A podcast where every week we talk about a different person. So how old was he when he first popped on the scene? That's a great If question. you say he was my age, I'm gonna <laughs> fucking die. And we veer wildly off track. Pop that Prosec. <laughs> Available on all your podcast apps. That's not right. Uh, Can you not say er in the advert? (laughs) Available on all your podcast platforms. Just search Bitchin' or Great Big Owl. We'll see you there. That was all right. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Burns and Dead are alive. I'm delighted about that, actually getting into the charts after three months on release and she's been me running. Here's a song dedicated to Marvin Gaye and to Jackie Wilson. It's the Commodores. Night shift. He was a friend of mine And he could sing a song His heart in every line Bates, on his own, tells how he's been waiting three months for Dead or Alive to ravish the charts before pivoting towards the video of the next single, Night Shift by the Commodores. Formed in Tuskegee University, Alabama in 1968 from the ashes of two student groups, the Mystics and the Jays, the Commodores were immediately signed to Atlantic Records for one LP. After signing to Motown in 1972 and being installed as a support act for Jackson 5 tours, their first single on the new label, Machine Gun, got to number 20 in the UK chart for three weeks in October of 1974. But thanks to the influence of lead singer Lionel Richie, they moved away from funk towards a more easy listening style, which paid off in 1978 when Eze got to number 9 in August of 1977 and three times a lady got to number 1 for five weeks in the late summer of 1978. After racking up nine more top 40 hits in the UK, Lionel Richie left the band to embark on a solo career in 1982, leaving the band to fend for themselves. This single, a tribute to Marvin Gaye and Jackie Wilson, who both died last year, is the follow-up to Only You, which got to number 93 in October of 1983. 
It's currently at number 49 over in America, but over here it's nipped up two places from number 19 to number 17. And here's the video. One word, gentlemen. Lick and pickerage. <laughs> Lick and pickery, I believe. Is it? Well, the IJ in Dutch is the is a Y sound. Yeah, but lick and pickerage sounds better. <laughs> it, uh, I don't know, lick and pickery rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? God, I'm torn now. Bates, um, he, he points out what the song's all about. It's a tribute to Marvin Gaye and Jackie Wilson. No love for uh, Eric Morecambe, Diana Dawes, Leonard Rossiter or Tommy Cooper, who also died in 1984, <laughs> I note. Yeah, they're just trying to censor history. <laughs> Terrible. I mean, this is the first of a torrent of videos we're going to see tonight, and uh, mm. a great many of them are going to feature the finest exponents of the visual art, deploying high-concept iconography, but probably wisely in the case of the Commodores. They've gone here for an expensively shot, but bog-standard on-stage performance with lots of dry eyes. Yeah, yeah, it's just a simple performance video. But it's, I mean, it's still fitted out with all the accruements that a modern band had in 1985. So it's mainly keyboards, those lovely headless basses that always look so good, and uh, Mm. keytars as well. Yes. Um, So, I mean, look, the Commodores in this video maintain their dignity. Um, yes. which is crucial because the song isn't really very dignified. <laughs> there's something, no. there's something about Night Shift in it that's undignified. And I recognize this even as a 12 year old. They had clearly noticed that Lionel Richie had had massive hits with this yes. kind of, how can, what could we call it? A sort of world soul music, I guess you could call it. So it's got these mm. kind of Afro elements in it. The beat doesn't quite yeah. roll. It's not funky. It has this kind of Afro pop step and the guitar is this mm. kind of, pointillist bundu boy style thing i should have done that in my andy kershaw accent but um uh you know it creates that same kind of lambent pleasantness of something off graceland from the from the following year so i mean really mm. this is a lionel richie record without him on it yes but but what this has though that i would argue actually makes it better than lionel's solo hits i mean i just really like this song i, I really yeah. like the melody i love that big fretless bass sound that cuts mm. through everything. Yeah, that Pino Palandino thing. That's that's the thing. I, I just think um, it, I, I really like this song, and, and I mean, of course, in '85, it's got this weird kind of resonance because the whole pushing of old soul. You know, this is peak. Mm. Let's buy some Kent Stop Dancing comps uh, time, exactly. and and you know, it, it, the song is in a sense a response not just to the passing of Marvin Gaye and Jackie Wilson, but also to the supposed kind of soullessness of modern pop. We we are in the Cronenberg different kind of strength era here yes um and lyrically you know this song gives listeners that kind of smug pleasure of knowing who they're on about you know when they're mentioning marvin and jackie um which i mean at the time i you know jackie wilson wasn't that high in our cognizance because higher and higher only no it only became a hit again i think in 87 so um yeah i mean i remember at the time not really knowing who that was about but but you know at this point it's it, it's not exactly a contradictory thing to do. Hip hop is is giving the world a means of black expression that actually prides itself on its coldness and its lack of warmth. And R and B by them was kind of trapped between um, 
being just pop music and being quite retrograde. It'd take probably Jam and Lewis and Control by Janet Jackson to move things on. So in mm. 1985, this record does look retrograde a little bit. Um, and by 1986, with Jam and Lewis and everything else, it would have looked as dated and pointless as things like the Christians or Danny Wilson. Um, it's this weird yeah. thing. It's kind of it's this it's this mm. modern sounding song, I guess, about an old soul figure. It's kind of like Gino. By De- it's telling actually that Dexy's covered this late on um, in mm. the noughties. But um, I've always loved this. I've always loved this um, this song. Yeah. There's there's just something about it. It's it it lifts you, and and it, it the melody's beautiful. And and I felt that as a kid. I did feel at the time, is Lionel Richie on this or not? Because it sounded so much like one of his records. But mm. I would argue it's probably better than All Night Long and Dancing on the Ceiling and all that. I think it's a better record. I mean, there's always been a tradition in black music to recognise the fallen. Mm. So th- th- this is no Danny Mirror shit, is it? <laughs> no, but no, at the not. same time, you can't escape that lick and pickery, <laughs> as I believe it's known in the Netherlands. <laughs> Um, you, do you know what I mean? It, it does get in the way a little bit. I like this record. I don't think this record is possible to actively dislike because um, there's nothing to dislike mm. about it. But at the same time, there's a part of me that thinks they're deserving of the gravest insult, which is that this cringing deification of dead soul singers is almost like it could have been written by a not very soulful white British band with a saxophone player in 501s. Mm. You know what I mean? It's just uh-huh. right on the edge. And the only reason they rise above that is the the, the actual quality of the singing mm. and the, the quality of the song. Um, but it's, I don't know, that strange quasi-religious sort of Lion King element <laughs> <to> the remembrance <laughs> Of of dead soul singers, you know what I mean? Very much so, yeah. As you yeah, say, there yeah. was a, a really a lot of that around in the mid eighties. Um, it's like eighties acts paying tribute to their influences always seems a bit weird, anyway, mm. for mm. some reason. Although this doesn't have that element of self mortification which you'd get of uh, bad records, which which deified dead soul singers, right? Where there was always that sort of you know. These guys were more natural and pure and dignified than we could ever be. Mm. You know what I mean? That creepy mm. stuff. Yeah. It doesn't you don't get that here. And they're obviously sincere, but it's just that because it was the period where like cringing nostalgia became endemic, um, it sort of almost infects this record because it was always reductive and it always seemed to end up with complex or subtle things being blanded out and yeah. simplified to the point where they could fit into advertising. Or at well, least yeah. to the point where they themselves could be more easily sold sold. It was like um it was like what happened to John Lennon in the eighties, you know, where all the complexities were ironed out, mm. like good stuff and bad. And mm. and Bob Marley. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But with soul singers and jazz musicians or more precisely with jazz it wasn't even jazz musicians it was just the generic figure of the jazz musician mm. right? the man <laughs> yeah. with a horn you know mm. it just got more egregious when you perceived it as being part of or adjacent to yuppie culture you know and this isn't that but because it's from 1985 it felt like it was in uncomfortably close proximity mm. I think the two clunkiest moments of the song are when they actually refer to lyrics, yes. in a sense. The, the line, you know, talk to me so you can see what's going mm. on. 
that's really <laughs> clunky and awful. And later on, when it when they talk about um, Jackie lifting us higher and higher, those are the two kind of worst <laughs> moments of the record. Yeah, well, there's one even worse than that. It goes on about when we were working out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which was, you know, it's a reference to baby workout, but it, you know, it sounds like they used to go to the gym, <laughs> which would have been odd because he'd, he'd been in a coma for about ten years. Yeah, yeah. But as, as a as a love letter, I mean, I know it's about um, Marvin and Jackie, but really, what this song summons to me is radio. It's about the magic of radio. It's about it's about that feel, yeah, yeah, yeah. that nighttime feel of radio keeping you company. Um, and and that's what's moving about this record, rather than the more sort of obvious clunky references to to lyrics and stuff. Yeah, you know, calling heaven, which I suppose they're doing the night shift. That's a bit disturbing. Because <laughs> I was working a bit of a night shift at the time at the co-op in Bullwall. Mm. You know, stacking shelves and lobbing uh, out of date blocks of lard into a skip. It's like, oh, is that what I've got waiting for me if I live a good life? Well, fuck that. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, this is quite an achievement for the Commodores, isn't it? Because they are essentially a band of Kens who've lost the one person that everyone knows. And yeah. having a big hit mm. after all that's happened, that's a, a, a fucking amazing achievement. Yeah, I mean, yeah, other yeah. bands have done that, but you could sort of... Even previous to that happening, you could detect the other musical talents in the band or they'd push themselves to the front a little bit. So when Fleetwood Mac carry on having its or the Supremes carry on having its, etc., you kind of expect that. But um, with the Commodores, definitely it was all about Lionel. Our consciousness mm. of the Commodores was definitely all about Lionel. So after he went, that, that is a real achievement. Although, did they have many hits after this? Not really, no. Maybe they were just waiting for other people to die and <laughs> an extra verse on. Would have been amazing if Lionel Richard died. Oh, what would they sing it. about him? <laughs> Lionel, you left us in the shit. I'd have bought that. Yeah. Uh, they, was, they just, you know, they were, they were getting outsold by the ZX Spectrum. No, I'm not going to. No, 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 no. Just cut that out. I can't believe I said that. So the following week, Night Shift jumped eight places to number nine. And two weeks later, it got all the way to number three, its highest position. A month later, it also got to number three in America because their charts are dead slow, as we'll discover later. The follow-up, Animal Instinct, only got to number 74 in May of this year, and they were soon dropped by Motown, but Night Shift won a Grammy for Best R&B Performance by a duo or group with vocals. And although they never troubled the UK chart again, they are going to this very day. And in 2010, they put out a new version of Night Shift in tribute to Michael Jackson. Oh, I bet that hasn't aged well. Yeah. <laughs> It's called Virgins and Philistines. It's got this on it. The colour field. Thinking of you. I guess I kind of thought to know I ought to be thinking of you. But a friendship's built on trust And that's something you never do. Long. On her own with the Top of the Pops logo on a video screen and some pink and green neon circles in the background tells us to watch out for a really great album that's coming out next month. 
I Love a Party by Russ Abbott, available on Kato Records, <laughs> with an advert voiced over by uh, Simon Bates. Uh-huh. No, it's actually Virgins and Philistines, who sound like the sort of people who would buy a Russ Abbott LP in 1985. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the first single from it. It's the colour field and thinking of you. Formed in Coventry in 1983, the colour field originally consisted of Terry Hall, who had just split up Funboy 3, and Toby Lyons, formerly of two-tone band The Swinging Cats, who played keyboards on the Funboy 3's one and only American tour. After recruiting Carl Shell, also of The Swinging Cats, they relocated to Stockport, mainly so Hall could go and see Man United home games, and named their new group after a 1960s art movement where the protagonist would paint a canvas one colour only. After signing to Chrysalis Records, their debut single, The Colour Field, just missed out on the top 40, getting to number 43 in January of 1984. And their next single, Take only got to number 70 in April of that year. This is the follow-up, assisted by the singer Katrina Phillips, which entered the top 42 weeks ago, and this week it's nudged up four places from number 17 to number 13. The Colourfield chaps, or Terry Hall at least, uh, was interviewed in the latest issue of Smash Hits, and uh, he spent his time coating down his previous bands. Mm. Uh, the specials were, quote, supposed to be at the head of a new Scar movement, but it was only Jerry Dammers who was into Scar. I thought it was crap. It's incredible that the specials' reputation has lasted so long. I still get checks for the first album, and you can still buy special ties in Carnaby Street. As for the Funboy 3, he said, I felt I had to look like a complete idiot in order to sell records. We were basically such a crap group. Just because (laughs) we were in a band together, people thought we were long-standing friends or something. I didn't really know them very well then, and I don't know them now. I felt I was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people, and I think the main problem was that we were into different music. They liked Billy Ocean. And I didn't. <laughs> I think by this point, I mean, record companies don't really know what to do with Terry mm. um, for quite a bit of his career. So the colour field is this kind of, I don't know, it's his last mooring post before he just starts being seen as a problem, really. Mm. And I mean, in a few years from now, his record company are going to, sorry, from 85, his record company are going to, you know, try getting him to work with Beverly Craven and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and even the colour field themselves are strangely unmarketable. Um, in a way although this song is very marketable because it's fucking fantastic i yes. love this song and i've been singing it all week mm. um it's a song guaranteed to appeal in the general shit fest of 85 because it instantly sounded old-fashioned in a good way yes you know you know there's like old-fashioned in a bad way like um tears for fear sowing the seeds of love for instance yeah. this is old-fashioned in a good way and i think it's old-fashioned in a good way because where i say that tears for first record you could say oh yeah spirit of 67 or whatever mm. this is a kind of non-specific nostalgia yeah. definitely a bit of a 60s thing but also a bit of a 70s singer songwriter type thing as well yeah and, and they're looking back not really to reintroduce a feel or a or raunchiness or a look or anything but it's more to introduce a kind of freedom in the songwriting i think mm. so they're not attitudinally dark songs. They're just shifty. And the album that you mentioned, by the way, is fucking fantastic, the album that this is from. Mm. Yeah. Um, and and that, that 
the thing is, the sound is shorn of that kind of big 80s-ness that we're hearing everywhere else in the in the episode. Yeah. Um, and Virgins of Philistines, it was a real revelation when I heard it in 85, because, you know, there's a there's a Roaches cover on that. There's a cover yeah. of the Hammond song by Roaches and things like that on it. It's a it, strangely unmarketable band. Um, yeah. But but the first band, really, in which Terry, I would argue, is Terry sings in a way. Yes. Um, he actually flexes his voice beyond his face. <laughs> you know, what I mean? <laughs> you know it, it's not just an expression of his moroseness. He's cursed, or, or blessed rather, with this face that's just instant deadpan. Yeah. And it curls into a smile a little bit for Funboy 3. But here, with Colourfield, you just feel it's more natural. Yeah. And he can sing in a grown-up way that he hasn't before. This is pretty much his style council period, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll do what I want now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I really dislike the Funboy 3. And I didn't like this at the time, simply because it wasn't the specials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I was surprised by that Smash Hits interview. Yeah. About how disparaging he was. I'm not surprised about what he said about the specials, because him and Jerry were always banging heads. But I was really startled by him just basically saying Funboy 3 were a crap group. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, it's in his nature, though, isn't it? You know it I mean? is in his nature. And his nature comes across, I think, in this performance quite a lot. He doesn't bring anything or any attitude to this. He's been kind of prized out of his Stockport home where he readily admits he just spends his life watching telly and going to see Man U. Yeah. And he, he's been taken to Top of the Pops. He's an old hand, hence he smirks a little bit. But I don't need any of that kind of blank-faced hostility here. No. It's more this kind of just this happy introversion. And I, I really like this song, always like this song from the first moment I hear, heard it. And I know it was a big Janice Long fave. I seem to recall her playing it quite a lot. So I would encourage people, if they're fans of the specials, fans of Terry Hall in general, and they've not properly investigated Colourfield, they should seek out that album, yeah. uh, Virgins and Philistines. I think it's really good. Yeah, You get the feeling yeah. he's found his comfort zone here because, yeah. I mean, the first yeah. single, the Colourfield, it's it's very Terry and the Bunny Men, isn't it? <laughs> or, or, the bu- yeah. or the Bun Boy 3, if you will. But you know what? What you know, what was influencing them, I think, it wasn't even the more outro kind of uh, bits of 60s and 70s stuff. It was more like Andy Williams, mm. you know, an yeah. easy listening. So Yeah, this is, this is very Radio 2 Pebbermill at 1. Wouldn't be out of place there, would it? Yeah. Very much so. And I think you can... I'm not saying you can draw a line from more specials to this, because more specials is kind of a quite a fractured take on that easy listening thing. Mm. But it's the same kind of focus, that, that desire not to do anything cool in a sense. Yeah. But just to do something, yeah, different and, and, and that, that has that kind of, that 60s hopefulness, but also that 70s kind of forlornness to it as well. So it's that non-specific nostalgia about it that I really like. Mm. Yeah, it's got the same mentality as the Style Council in that it's sort of perverse, but not for the sake of it. Mm. And I mean, you know, let's not get carried away and call this uh, a brave move because brave is getting an erection balancing a sugar lump on it and sliding it through the fence into a field with a horse in it. Like, this is just a song, but it's but it is escapology. I've not seen the video. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's it's escapology. It's um and it's very sort of au courant in its embrace of the cardi wearing anti macho thing, right, which yeah. was just mm. picking up speed at the time. And it's more honest in that than something like the Smiths, where the the self-deprecation is fooling nobody. 
Um, the, mm-hmm. the shyness is always tugging at your sleeve to make sure that you notice it. You know, this. Mm, you know. I'd love to know what Terry Hall thought of Morrissey at this time. I'm sure he <laughs> said somewhere. If you if you hunt it down, I mean, he was not shy of uh, no, of sharing his no. thoughts on such things. But it's this really and truly is genuinely a nice cup of tea of a record. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was felt yes. constructive and appropriate in 1985. Um, although musically, it's actually a bit behind the times because that thing of post-punk people playing jazz chords or you know sixths and major mm. sevenths on a huge hollow body guitar and allowing in the influence of like supper club music or you know middle of the road or whatever for it, that was kind of done by 1985 like aztec camera and mm. weekend mm. and everything but the girl and all these people have been doing it for a few years like since 82 or 83 which in yeah. 80s pop terms is a really long time ago but it doesn't really matter and it especially doesn't matter now because, you know, years after the fact, like if you, especially if you don't have that critic's responsibility to discourage cultural stagnation, it doesn't matter where a record fits. It, you know, you are it, you play it and it either sounds good or it doesn't, and I think this one does. Uh, mm. But, yeah, the main feeling you get, obviously, is that this record has to be like this because it's so far from the specials and Fanboy 3. Yeah. And it's not that it's insincere, it's just that... Like there were probably several roads that Terry could have taken at this point, and it's at least possible that he chose this one with a certain perverse glee. And frankly, I approve because mm. I'm always sympathetic to that impulse at the very least, and I completely understand why going with it is sometimes uh, necessary and medicinal. Mm. You know mm. what I mean? I mean, he's invented the beautiful South here, hasn't he? Ooh, that's a, that's a harsh charge. I hear that a lot, and and it's it's aggravating in a sense that he ends up working with people like Ian Broody and and Lightning Seeds and all those people. I kind of I, I resent Terry's co-option by the Britpop Brigade a little bit um, mm. because his voice isn't quite like any of those people. There's there, there there's something about Terry's voice that it. I'm going to stop before I I just start chanting play up sky blues or something. This is getting dangerously <laughs> close. To, this is getting dangerously close to civic pride. But um, there's a resignation to Terry's voice. I, I don't. I don't know how else to put it. He has by this point. There, Taylor's right. There are all kinds of different things he could have done. Uh, it's miraculous that he chose perhaps the only one that had any dignity. Um, <laughs> and, and 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 that's you know just retreating. He's not fussed about going to parties or being a pop star anymore. Uh, I don't know what he's fussed about. I guess he's fussed about Manu. Yeah, although and and, perverse as he is, he's moved to the one part of the Greater Manchester region where everyone supports <laughs> Man City. Even at the time. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, I, I, I really don't think he's fussed about going to parties or being part of pop. I think he still likes music, enjoys music, and wants to make music. Mm. But he's bereft of ambition at this point in terms of bit pushing himself as a pop star, and that's why his record companies successively just can't figure out what the fuck to do with him. And I still don't really, until the specials reconvened, I don't think they ever really figured out what to do with Terry. No, I mean, I think the best thing he did after this album was that tricky record that he was on. Yeah. Where it just fits into it perfectly. This really Mm -hmm. spooky, depressed, scary sounding record with this sort of tiny voice on it. Yeah. I was really into this record at the time. I remember liking it a lot. Mm. Um, And I appreciated the mild 
gentle feel to it because I was 12 and I had no interest in the kind of manliness that makes you seem manly in a class of 12 year olds, you know, (laughs) and for a couple of years in my early teens, I got quite into that whole sort of cardi lad, you know, penguin classics, don't drink or smoke, swooning Mm. weakling thing. (laughs) <laughs> hence yeah. the girl trouble I, partly i think because i'd moved down south to a place where that was tolerated um mm. you know like in kidderminster if you don't fit in you just wear black and get a piercing and you hang around in the town center <laughs> drinking cider but you know in the south as a teen you could at least get away with pretending that you weren't a ragged mess of surging hormones and suppressed <laughs> rage and in fact, you wanted nothing more than to sit down quietly and read your book like a 60 year old <laughs> Northern bachelor, uh, maybe grow up to be a florist. And it wasn't really me, but it was useful in the 80s, just like it's useful for these people, you know. But yeah. it's still at the sounds associated with it up until about this time, up until about this point. I'd have recoiled from the radio tunis of this, right? Those, mm. that, those, mm. because those sort of chords and this sort of arrangement, it wasn't about what they actually sounded like. It was about the associations, which was Sunday afternoon. You know, it, it was mm. that 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 sort of dead space in your week. You know, that was what it. So, and you know, elderly relatives and all of that sort of stuff. And the only thing worse than the sound of Sunday afternoons was the sound of Sunday evenings. Mm which was the dolorous brass at the end of open all hours. You yeah. know, like the last <laughs> post for your weekend. You remember how depressing it was on a Sunday evening, like when like the closing theme of That's Life would yes. kick in. And it was like, you know, one last mm. amusing local paper misprint. Yeah, the, the weekend ends here. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, right. Well, we had, we've all had a good chuckle at this sign that says the pubic swimming pool. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and now it's, this is... Yeah, it's the last knockings. It's a sheer misery. You just have to sit there. You've got your pyjamas on, like so separated from the freedom of adulthood by your dress with a glass of milk. <laughs> and you sat there with that as an awful brass band jazz theme. And the, you sat there watching a, 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 a shit jerkily scrolling cartoon with Letraset yes. on it. You know what I mean? That's death. Ugh. <laughs> no, I couldn't. But by 1985, those associations were easing, right? And those audio-visual symbols of the British Sunday lost their power to instantly make everything seem dismal. And it became possible to sift through that and pick out stuff you could actually use and maybe discover some you really liked. Because all of a sudden, as the 80s... As Britain started changing in the 80s, that old stuff was no longer the establishment. It, didn't, it wasn't the sound of the establishment. It was an antidote to the new establishment. Mm. This new thought world of money and yeah. chrome yeah, yeah. and glass and aerobics. You know, it was, we were short of options. Yeah, I mean, you, uniquely, uniquely in this episode, this song, it sounds intimate. It's the size of your living room, yeah. this record, you know. Yeah. It's the sound, yeah. size of your lounge. Everything else in this episode wants to sound like it can fill a stadium or at least fill up a, a, a super club or whatever. Mm. This is living room sized. Yeah. It's intimate and, and that makes it completely unique. I mean, not to jump the gun, but for me, this is by far the highlight of the episode. Really love this song. Don't know what the kids make of it because by this point they're just a murky shape, aren't they? Mm. <laughs> kind of like rocking from side to side. Then you know there might as well be rows of cutouts being moved left and right by the 
floor crew, like <laughs> like the waves in Captain Pugwash. <laughs> yeah. They are into it because it's catchy as fuck. I mean, it is. Ca- you yeah. you have probably been singing this all week, Al. I should imagine. I have, yes. Yeah. I'm the kind of person that hasn't anything to lose, Neil. <laughs> 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 there is an audience member on a gantry uh, clapping gently along nice. in a plastic hat shaped like a World War One helmet, um, <laughs> but with this vacant look, you know, like they've like they've got shell shock, mm. or as I call it, unpatriotic cowardice. Uh, <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think a lot of them don't quite know what to make of it. No. Mm. So the following week, thinking of you stayed at number 13, but the week after that, it nipped up one place to number 12, its highest position. However, the follow-up castles in the air would only get to number 51, and they never troubled the top 40 again. And after Shale left in 1986 and Lions walked out midway through the recording of their third LP in 1987, forcing Hall to recruit Raquel Welsh's backing band to finish it off, the colour field were wound down. So if you decide to change your view Colour me peach and black, colour me taken aback. This episode's got off to an absolute flyer, so we're going to leave it there and we're going to come back to the next part tomorrow. So, on behalf of Neil Kulkarni and Taylor Parks, this is Al Needham. Stay pop crazed. <laughs> Chart music. Great big owl. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.